Industry groups seem to support the Biden administration's September 14th memo on secure software development and acquisition. It lays out a detailed way for agencies to get the software so they're, in theory, assured of the security of the software supply chain. Gordon Bitko is Senior Vice President of Policy at the Information Technology Industry Council. He joins me now with more. Gordon, good to have you back. Tom, as always, great to be here with you. This specifies a couple of things. One, self-attestation under certain conditions by the software vendor and also a software bill of materials. You're confident that agencies know they're not getting a bill of goods here instead of a software bill of materials? Well, I think, Tom, uh, that those are great questions to start with. The overall intent of the executive order and this additional follow-on guidance is is perfect. It, It addresses real concerns that that need to be addressed. But there are still implementation questions, as you were hinting at in in what you just asked there. Agencies need the resources to evaluate the the self-attestations or the software bills and material, and that might prove challenging for them right now. There's not really standards for how to do all that yet. We don't know that all agencies are going to approach it in the same way, and that could lead to to additional confusion and and challenges. And, And then I think the other thing that's really important, Tom, is the scope of the executive order and what NIST goes on to define as as software that's covered and critical software is potentially huge because it talks about products containing software as well. That could mean TVs, it could mean cars, it could mean industrial control systems, not just classical information technology systems. And one of the, I think, hang-ups could be, it mentions the SBOM needed depending on the criticality of the software. But sometimes uncritical software can be the source of attacks, as we found in the Log4j, you know, plain old text log file. Somebody figured out a way to hack that, something no one would have considered critical until that hack came through that way. That's right. It really depends in many cases, not just on the software, but the risk environment that it's in and and how it's being used as to whether or not it's a vulnerability. Log4j in some cases was used in very benign circumstances. And in other applications, it was used in places that it had access to potentially very critical pieces of software or very sensitive data. The same thing is true across the board, and and that is really one of the challenges with figuring these things out. And a a software bill of materials, while it's helpful for things like that, it's not a silver bullet, Tom, right? It doesn't tell you, because the vendor doesn't know, where is that software being used and what other things might the agency already be doing or need to do. And I can also see something of a closed loop of never-ending train here, just to mix my metaphors. If you have a software bill of materials and it lists a bunch of open-source pieces, which even the commercial vendors are using open-source components in commercial software, the source of the open-source then becomes an issue. It it does, and the the guidance, in fact, says agencies can apply it to open-source software, but then it really does become a question about who's even responsible for that attestation in the use of open source software and who's responsible if they do decide that they need a third party to attest or to produce artifacts. And it could go on in an indefinite loop, as, as you noted. And do you feel that, or is it your sense that agencies or any organization has the capacity to be able to evaluate a software bill of material? Often you hear it likened to the ingredients on packaged food, but even the most even Fritos and Doritos don't have ten thousand ingredients on their labels. I think that the answer to that is going to be, and I know this is sound sounding like a cop out, but it depends. There will be certain cases where, if an agency truly decides to put a lot of resources into one product, one piece of software that they decide is super high risk, 
they probably can do a, a pretty good job. But can they scale that to everything in the agency? And do they really have an understanding of the true risk profile? Unfortunately, Tom, my sense is the answer to that is no, because this, along with all the other guidance that's come out from from the White House, from the Office of Management and Budget, from the federal CIO and the federal CISO, all good and well-intentioned, but no resources associated with it. Yeah, and that well, really leaves agencies in a, in a bad spot. That's an old story, I guess. We're speaking with Gordon Bitko, Senior Vice President of Policy at the Information Technology Industry Council. Well, let's start with your members, software vendors, resellers, systems integrators, companies that are dealing in the software. What should they do to make sure that they can meet in an earnest way the requirements that the agencies will place on them from this from this White House guidance? What we would most like to see, Tom, in general, regardless of which of our member companies, is continued further dialogue between industry and government to really nail down a lot of the details that we've talked about, these uncertainties about how SBOMs can be reported and how versions can be tracked and what each individual agency needs to do to decide criticality. Really, those are things that we're going to be best served. I know it takes time, but we're going to be best served by having an actual constructive dialogue. At the same time, though, all of our member companies, I'm confident, would say that they have good software practices today, and what they want, what they want to do is have the ability to demonstrate that, and, and to demonstrate that in real ways, not just to figure out how to comply with 20 different agencies all telling you, report this way versus that way. That That's counterproductive. Right. So agencies have not really issued guidance documents on compliance with this. So maybe that's a good place to start, and maybe the compliance document could be uniform across the government. That certainly is the hope. There is a mention in the OMB guidance that the FAR Council is going to take up a case to look at requiring a uniform attestation form and process. That would be great. We all know, Tom, that the regulatory process for new FAR regulations can be time-consuming, and that's a real issue. There is a sense of urgency here. But at the same time, if we allow each individual agency to do their own thing, we're putting the cart before the horse. We're going to get a bunch of different responses to the same question instead of agencies and industry working together collectively. And the memorandum does assign authorities. It says the CIO shall do this. The chief acquisition officer should do that. CISA has a role. OMB has a role and so on and so forth. The question is, you know, in your experience watching how all these things play out over the decades, often the guidance doesn't get down to the contracting officer on the front lines there. Do you get the sense that perhaps they've got to be pulled into this because that's really where requirements get laid out? Undoubtedly, the rubber meets the road in the actual contracting work. One of the things that we've advocated for from an industry standpoint frequently is that the contracting process shouldn't be just dependent on the contracting officer. It should really be an integrated team, security, the program managers, the business owners, the technologists, the contracting officers all working together. That way we don't have, again, after the fact, when we're ready to award a contract, this new requirement for secure software development that hasn't been part of the discussion. Right, because especially the program owners, with all of these digital services and customer experience, and that's all leading to lots of new software, you would think they, above all, would want to make sure, hey, folks, whatever you deliver me, I don't want it to be hackable or something. Yeah, absolutely. We would encourage program managers to be thinking about security in their products. And you're right, they all are software products these days in one way or another. They use software to some degree. They've got to be thinking about security on day one or even on day zero as they start the project. What does it look like to make sure that this 
product which might contain sensitive data about our employees here in this agency or about Americans, that that's secure and we want everybody to know that that's a collective decision that everybody's got to be involved in. And I think, Tom, that leads into something we haven't really touched on all that much, but which is going to be an emerging thing over the next few years. And that's really how do agencies think about these sort of supply chain and cybersecurity issues in the procurement evaluation phase. The FAR Council, and I don't want to, I know I'm opening the door to another topic, but the FAR Council has announced this new Part 40 that's going to contain all cybersecurity scrim guidance going forward. And things like this OMB memo are going to have to be factored in there. Well, maybe they should make it far part 16 and move everything down a notch because 15 comes up so much, 16 would be nearby in the books. Indeed. (laughs) Indeed. But somehow they saved part 40 for cyber supply chain guidance. All right. Route 40. Gordon Bitko is Senior Vice President of Policy at the Information Technology Industry Council. As always, thanks so much. Tom, thanks. Great to be with you as always. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the White House memorandum itself at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, 
of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required and that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, 
is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, 
And you're going to get in there quickly (laughs) and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha. And thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Your story, it lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.